For patients living with inflammatory bowel diseases, or IBD, clinical trials are important for the evaluation and approval of medication options, including broadening treatment options. Currently, only 6% of trials are completed on time due to unfulfilled enrollment. Inadequate information about clinical research and lack of communication between patients and providers. You're listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. And I'm Dr. Karen Heller, Chief Scientific Officer at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Joining me today to discuss clinical trials in IBD is gastroenterologist Dr. William Sanborn, Professor of Medicine and Adjunct Professor of Surgery at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Sanborn, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much. It's an honor to have the opportunity to share my thinking today. And we're delighted to have you. To start, why should patients participate in clinical trials? Thinking about this from the patient's perspective, but really filtered through the treating physician, which is what we're talking about today, there's a variety of reasons that patients may want to consider participating in clinical trials. There will be some patients with refractory forms of disease who don't have other good treatment options and are potentially facing a surgery that they may not want to have or ongoing therapy with prednisone, for instance, that's not a desirable situation, where the ability to participate in a clinical trial gives them access to a novel mechanism of action medication. So that's one possibility. There are also situations where a drug with an established mechanism of action is being tested, for instance, mesalamine or anti-TNF drugs or anti-endocrine drugs now, that there will be some limitation to the existing drug or drugs in the class in one setting, or there may be from an insurance and copay perspective, financial barriers to the patient getting access to the established drug in the class, and the patient will choose to participate in a clinical trial to have access to a class of medications that he or she might otherwise not be able to access because of insurance and financial barriers. So that's certainly something that we see. Some patients are altruistic and recognize that new medications require clinical trials, and if advances in the field are going to be made and new treatment options are made available to themselves and to other patients in the future that clinical trials are necessary. And some patients are just very interested in clinical trials to advance care of everyone, including themselves. There's also a physician aspect to this that I would say is a a physician mentality. And it can vary to some extent in different parts of the world or in different practice settings within the United States. So, If you were really to strictly limit the treatment of patients with inflammatory bowel disease to what's approved by the FDA and so-called on-label, then very often patients would run out of options. And what physicians do a great deal of is prescribing off-label therapy. They'll prescribe azathioprine or mercaptopurine, which is off-label, has significant safety risk with respect to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and skin cancer risk, bone marrow depression, and where the scientific basis of efficacy is modest at best, and yet patients will get these off-label drugs. Or patients will be failing a TNF blocker, and they will 
escalate the dose or go to more frequent dosing, very often that means you're increasing the system's cost from $25,000 a year to $50,000 a year. And the science behind the dose escalation is not that strong, and yet people will do it. If there's some data that a drug is effective in a given disease, but the drug's not yet approved for that disease and it's approved for something else, physicians will often petition insurance companies to give expensive biologics off-label in advance of the drug getting approved for that indication. So all of these off-label situations, the treating physician feels that they're doing their absolute best to take care of the patient. But what they're really doing is, on an N of 1 basis, experimenting on the patient. They're taking a drug that's not yet proven to be safe and effective in the patient population that they're doing and giving it before it's really well established that it's safe or effective, or they're pushing the dose in a way that's not been well established to be safe and effective. And one could argue that those patients really, rather than getting off-label treatment, should go into clinical trials when it's all possible. So there's this wide range of reasons to go into clinical trials, some of which are easy and some of which are very kind of physician and, frankly, societal resource-dependent as to whether alternatives are made to going into clinical trials. So considering all of these issues, the perceived patient benefits, the physician viewpoint, as you've clearly outlined, it's clearly important that doctors and patients work together to identify appropriate potential clinical trials and start a conversation about that. How would they go about identifying these clinical trials? Well, there's several resources. There's now by federal law a national repository, clinicaltrials.gov, and all clinical trials are required to be registered. You can find that website and Google your disease, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and you can see all the clinical trials that are going on, and for the most part, you can see the sites that those clinical trials are going on that would help you find out what the universe is. Now, it can be a bent of a daunting task. There's quite a few drugs in development, and so figuring out which of the mechanisms is interesting, would make sense, is kind of challenging. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, CCFA, has a fair amount of online information about clinical trials, and so that can be a well-vetted source of information for patients and physicians that might be considering investigational therapy. And then there are patients that travel far for clinical trials, but participating in a clinical trial is a fairly big commitment. Often you're coming back and forth to the study site every few weeks, a minimum of once a month or so. And so traveling, you know, for hours to get to a study site is pretty disruptive to people's lives and harder to do. So another way of approaching it is to really understand what is the center or the centers in your geographic region and kind of define that as how far you're willing to drive from a practical basis, knowing you're going to need to go pretty frequently to that place. And so then the universe gets fairly small. So in a major city, there might be two or three or four centers that are doing inflammatory bowel disease trials and other areas of the country, there may be only one. Then each of those centers generally will have a website and you can see what trials they have that are actively recruiting the patient themselves 
or their treating physician can form a relationship with some sort of point person provider at that center or several centers so that they can easily reach out and find out what's going on in addition to looking at the website. And I think that this latter strategy of really understanding which doctors and which centers in your drivable region are doing clinical trials in IBD and have a point person at each of those places that you can reach out to, plus understand if there are websites related to that center that you can easily look at to see what they're doing, to see what's on the menu, so to speak. And then for any given center, there's probably going to be not more than two or three or four options, sometimes only one. And then the patient can do their due diligence a little bit on a much more coned down list of possibilities. The patient's physician can reach out to their physician contact at the study center and say, hey, I've got this patient. Here's the clinical story. I see you're doing two or three different clinical trials. Which one do you think would fit best for this patient? And that sort of strategy, I think, can work quite well. So as the providers and the patients talk about these options, How do providers use patient-friendly language to discuss clinical trials as a viable treatment option for their patients and not as a last resort? This really comes back to what I was saying a couple questions back about the provider being kind of open and honest with themselves a little bit about things. So, for instance, when patients have failed an anti-TNF drug, the data is that if you take a second anti-TNF drug and especially a third anti-TNF drug, that you're very much less likely to respond than if you're anti-TNF naive. So if you're looking at an alternative mechanism of action drug to switching anti-TNFs, you could really say to the patient, one of the options we could do is switch anti-TNF drugs, but the likelihood this is going to work is pretty low. And so you're going to get all the risk of an anti-TNF drug, but the likelihood that you're going to benefit is much less. And so we could do it, but you're going to have the cost, the risk, and the lower likelihood of benefit. And you might really be better off going into this clinical trial of this alternative agent. I'll see patients who are on one mesalamine product and they're not doing well and they get switched to another mesalamine product. Well, there's no clinical evidence that switching, you're given 5-aminosalicylate, whatever you do. So there's really no scientific rationale or solid clinical data to say that it makes any sense to switch from one 5-ASA drug to another for the reason that the patient isn't doing well. You might switch because another drug will be better covered in their insurance plan. That's no problem. But if you're switching for failure, it doesn't much make sense. And then you'll see patients who might be getting infliximab at 10 milligrams per kilogram every four weeks or something. Well, that probably costs $100,000 a year. And it's not at all clear that that's working very well. And it's incredibly expensive. It's not on label. And you could make a strong argument that that patient would be better off in a clinical trial than pushing to the extremes of one of the drugs that's way outside the bounds of what's either been studied or proven to work or proven to be safe. I think that's a huge piece of it is really the physician understanding that they're not obligated to turn cartwheels to do anything possible to avoid the patient being in a clinical trial and that it may not be in the patient's best interest and that if they're really honest with themselves about it, that 
what they're doing with all these sort of extreme use of existing drugs is really a form of experimentation, but it's not going to lead to data that's very useful for society or to advance care. So I think that's actually the biggest thing when you're giving the patients the options if you lay it out that all this off-label treatment, and there's a huge amount of this goes on in the United States, is really sort of unproven and experimental and expensive, that puts a very different context than to offering the patient formal participation in a clinical trial. And if you go outside the U.S. to Europe, to Australia, to England, the healthcare delivery in those settings is much more restricted, and the physicians are just not allowed to prescribe like that. And so they recruit better into clinical trials because the doctors are not allowed to do all of this self-experimentation, which goes on a lot more in the U.S. The other thing is patients often don't know how to think about the possibility that they might get placebo therapy. In the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease clinical trial design space, the vast majority of trials that we would design today will have what we call open-label rescue or extension phases. So usually there's a period of study where the patient is required to take either drug or placebo, and that often runs for anywhere from 8 to 12 to 16 weeks. At the end of that time, if the patient is not improved, then they're able to go into an open-label treatment program where they're guaranteed to get the drug. So what I will usually do is explain to the patient that from an FDA perspective and a society perspective, when you take a drug or get prescribed a drug, you really want to know that taking that drug is better than not taking it. It's better than placebo. And you want to know what the risks are. So you need to know if taking that drug will lead to risks that are greater than if you didn't take the drug. And the only way to figure that out is to have placebo-controlled trials. On the other hand, these patients are sick, they have symptoms, and they need a treatment plan. And the idea of going on to placebo when I'm sick, from the patient's perspective, isn't very exciting. So what I tell them that is they're kind of going into a short-term lottery, and the chances they're going to get drug, it'll depend on the study. It's one-to-one, two-to-one, three-to-one, four-to-one, it depends on the study. But it's usually at least 50-50 that you'll get the drug, and often the percentage chances will be two or three or four-to-one, more likely that you're going to get drug than placebo. So that's actually, if you think about buying a lottery ticket, that's a pretty good lottery ticket. And then the lottery has an end to it. And at the end of the lottery period, you're guaranteed to get the drug if you're not doing well. And so that's kind of how I present it to patients. You're likely to get the drug right out of the gates. You won't know. I won't know. But at the end of 8 to 16 weeks, depending on the design of the trial, if you're not better, then you and I will both know that you're getting the drug for sure and you'll get to try it. So you just have to be able to suffer through that first phase if you don't do well. Then in the longer-term studies that go out for a year or more, patients will sometimes be randomly assigned to continue drug or to stop the drug, but that's only if they've responded to begin with. And then in those trials, if you relapse, you can immediately go on to drug. So again, once you're better, then you don't care so much what you're getting because you feel better, and at any time that you wouldn't feel better, you're guaranteed to get drug. So that's kind of how I explain it to patients. You're sort of trading off what's important to the patient with what's important to society. And I think the way clinical trials are designed for Crohn's and colitis today, it balances those concerns pretty well. 
So as the physicians have more conversations with patients about getting them into clinical trials, how should these doctors be engaged in the coordination of care for patients who are participating in a trial? Well, what's really important to understand is that once a patient's in a clinical trial, anything that happens to them is of interest to the clinical trial and to the FDA. And usually you have to fix all of the Crohn's or colitis-related medications. You can't start and stop them because if you do, that will confound the ability to interpret whether the patient responded to drug or not. So if the patient's on mesalamine, you continue it at a stable dose. If the patient is on azathioprine, you continue it at a stable dose. We often don't continue biologics, but then what we do is require that they wash out for eight weeks or 12 weeks before they start the study. So they're not going to be co-administered a biologic during the trial, and they've actually washed out of it. With prednisone, we usually fix the prednisone dose during the induction phase of the trial. So fix it for about eight to 16 weeks. And then during the maintenance phase of the trial, we'll systematically taper the prednisone according to a defined schedule to evaluate the steroid sparing effect of the new drug during maintenance. So it's very important that those other drugs be fixed and managed according to the study protocol. So if a practitioner who has referred a patient to a study is sharing care with the clinical research site, the practitioner needs to realize that they really need to abdicate or give up the ability to make adjustments in the patient's care while the patient is in the clinical trial because it would confound the interpretation results. Now, of course, if there's an emergency and the patient needs to be rescued, then you may have to hospitalize them, give them steroids, introduce a new biologic or something. Typically, that means the patient is going to need to leave the clinical trial and be declared a failure. And that's okay too, but you always want to do that in communication with the study site and not just do it unilaterally unless there's a real emergency and then communicate quickly with the study site after the fact. The other issue is adverse events and side effects. So the FDA requires that the investigator and the center that are is conducting the study report all of the side effects or adverse events that occur that could potentially be related to the study drug. So if a patient becomes pregnant, if a patient develops a malignancy, if the patient ends up in the hospital, if the patient has a surgery, all of those things need to be captured. So if a patient shows up with bronchitis or sinusitis and gets an antibiotic, the study site needs to know that because they'll need to capture that in the adverse event information and eventually report that to the FDA. So those are the kind of the main things. It's really just communicating what's going on with the patient, with the study center, with respect to any new conditions that evolve exacerbation of existing conditions that require treatment, and any things like pregnancy or cancer or death or serious illness that might occur. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Karen Heller, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Sanborn, Professor of Medicine and Adjunct Professor of Surgery at the University of California, San Diego. We know that patients can and should stay up to date on new research and clinical trials, which might open doors for them, as you talked about before, and allow them to go to their providers and discuss what they've identified. But what can doctors do to make sure their patients are being proactive about new clinical trials? Well, this is really 
a hard area. I think it's hard for the physicians themselves to keep up on what's going on with clinical trials. If I think about diseases that I should know as a gastroenterologist outside of inflammatory bowel disease, for instance, NASH and NAFLD, liver disease. So if I have a patient that's obese and has fatty liver disease and potentially would be a candidate for therapy for that with an investigational drug, how do I know what the patient ought to be getting or where I might refer them? Well, fortunately, I have a colleague, Rohit Lumba, at my center who's an expert in that that I could reach out to. But if, if I didn't, how would I figure that out? There's actually not a very good way to do it. And for people in practice that are seeing a wide range of patients, and they may have some patients with inflammatory bowel disease and some patients with hepatitis C and some patients with NASH and patients with helicobacter and, you know, just a full range of things that gastroenterologists and hepatologists see, it's awfully hard to know where to turn for resources to find out what clinical trials might be available for X, Y, and Z condition. So as we talked about earlier, currently the best way to do this if you have a substantial fraction of patients with inflammatory bowel disease in your practice who may need to be referred to clinical trials is to pick out you know, a couple of centers in your region and develop a relationship with them. But that is necessary, doable, but if there were some central repository that could help steer you initially, that would really be a big advance forward and, and fulfill an unmet need. So that brings me actually to my next question. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, CCFA, is developing a new clinical trial community that will provide educational materials, a clinical trial finder, and a video series on clinical trials that will be available next spring. You've talked a lot about what's important to the patients and to providers about clinical trials, but in summary, what is the most important consideration for providers when discussing clinical trials with their IBD patients? Well, I think what the CCFA is developing is just fantastic and will be new to our field and I imagine will be very welcomed by both patients and their doctors because it provides a sort of one-stop shop clearinghouse to see what's accessible to an individual patient in their region. And if the study's done the way that I expect the CCFA would do it, there would be quite a bit of information about the mechanism of action of the drug so they could kind of get a feel for that. And some patients and doctors are going to be drawn more towards one mechanism of action than another for a given patient with their treatment history and their fears and everything that else that goes into their patients thinking about it. So that'll be a tremendous resource. I, th I think the most important consideration is just building into the physician and the patient's mindset that there's often a role for clinical trials, maybe even more than they had initially thought, and then identifying a go-to place for information that can quickly and easily, in the context of a busy life and a busy practice and short office visits that never have enough time to do everything, that you know where to turn to see what the options are for clinical trials. And I'm just very delighted and excited to see the CCFA developing this clinical trial community. Well, many thanks to our guest, Dr. William Sanborn, for joining us today to talk about clinical trials in IBD. It was really great having you with us, and we really appreciate your time and energy that went into this conversation. So thank you. You're more than welcome, and thank you for the invitation. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Heller. To access this episode and others in this series, and to download the REACH MD app, 
visit ReachMD.com. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.